I want to talk a bit about uh, grace and failure today. I was uh, on my way in early this morning, as I sometimes am, uh, and I was listening to uh, Snow Patrol. Anybody remember them from early 2000s? Yeah, they, they have, a, they have a, a song called Chasing Cars. Do you remember that? If I lay here, if I just lay here, would you lie with me and just forget the world? Anybody familiar? Yeah, okay. So there's this one lyric in the song that I, so when I, when I listen to songs, I hear, I, I try to hear them through the redemptive lens. Most love songs are way too sappy, but they are really interesting when you hear them through a lens of dependence to God. And so I often, I often think about that. And the one line in this song is, well, there's two lines that are, that are beautiful. And, and one line is, I need your grace to remind me to find my own. I need your grace to remind me to find my own. I need your grace so that I can experience it in my own life in a unique way. And then it says, before we uh, forget what we're told, before we get too old, show me a garden that's bursting into life. This idea that I want, I want to experience hope in the midst of my imperfection that fills me up again. And so, uh, so we're going to talk, talk about all that uh, this week a little bit. We are journeying through the book of Hosea, which is this interesting, for some of you, maybe obscure book. Uh, it's, a, it's called one of the minor prophets. Uh, minor just because it's short, not because it's unimportant. Uh, but but um, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And the way we read the Old Testament is we read it through the lens of Jesus in our lives. So we, we read it through the lens, we read the scriptures through the lens of, of what the Bible tells us about Jesus. That Jesus is the full representation of God's being, the radiance of God's glory, the exact image and character of God. In fact, you've heard me say this before if you've been around, but at one point... Um, in, in the Old Testament, uh, people are forbidden for having any graven images of God. No, no images created of God. That changed in the early church, their view toward that, after Jesus, because they said, well, God has written his own image now. So we can depict Jesus in images. So this is the first time you see Jesus start to be depicted in images. At first they were like, ooh, we can't do that. And they're like, actually, God's actually given us his image now. So we read the whole scriptures through the lens that Jesus is the fullness of what God was always going for. Sometimes people grasped that. Sometimes they did not. So when we see, the, when we read the Old Testament, we see a people's journey with growing closer to this God that would one day be revealed completely in Jesus. All right, so when we read, specifically when we read the Old Testament, we keep our eyes open for where are the glimpses that the, uh, the understandings of God actually deviate from everybody else's understandings at the time and move toward what we see in Jesus. And the prophets help us notice this. No other religion, no other ancient religions had prophets that actually spoke back to their own people for conviction. The point of your prophets, if you were a prophet of Baal or whatever, was, was to hurl curses at the, at the other, at the enemy. But the prophets of God began to say, actually, my people, you're losing your way. It's a very different approach. So we see glimpses of the heart of God. So last week, we, we talked about this really complex, interesting book that was written over the course of 25 years and is not linear in any way. So it can be, really be confusing. We can't do like chapters 1 through 6 this week and, you know, 7 through 10. It's not how this works. 
but it's the story of a guy named Hosea, and he's a prophet, and God tells him to go and marry a prostitute. And he does it. And he marries this woman named Gomer. And she has lived the life of a prostitute, and she, after he marries her, continues to go back to those ways and leaves him. And their marriage disintegrates. And then he's told a second time, go back and claim this woman as your wife. And so he goes back and he reclaims her. And in the midst of this, we are told that this story is intended to be street theater for God's relationship to, the, to his people. Okay, many times prophets don't just give a message with their words, they live out a message with their lives. So you can see this in Jeremiah, you can see this in, in um, Ezekiel, does it a ton. You can see it all over the place. But anyways, so Hosea's job is to show God's people through his life the nature and character of God in the midst of God's people failing and being unfaithful over and over and over again. And this is why it's such an important book, because it gives us a glimpse in a very unique way of God's heart that we see then fulfilled in Jesus. So last week we looked at two interesting things. And, and so, uh, so we, we looked at the idea that, um, that <laughs> we'll say God feels. That God is emotional in the scriptures. God is not stoic, as often we, we talk about. God is actually very emotional. He gets incredibly excited. He gets very frustrated. Just like any other parent does when they love, or, or even a spouse, when, when they love somebody deeply and that it doesn't always work out. And you're like, oh, come on. Come on. It's so frustrating that you're moving in this direction when I'm inviting you into something fuller. Okay? And so there's this idea that God feels. But the second thing that we talked about last week is that God suffers. That God is willing to hurt for the sake of love and redemption. God is willing to, to, to bear the reputation that he took on when he took Gomer back the second time and the first time. God was willing to walk with her in the long, slow, painful journey of redemption no matter what that looked like. And remember, what that means is we're, we're reading Gomer through the lens of, of God's people. Okay, so that was last week. Um, so the idea is that what God feels is unending love and faithfulness for his people. And that faithfulness means that God's willing to suffer in order to reveal that love seen in most fullness in Jesus. So we're going to go back to that, um, and we're going to, uh, to talk about grace, and we're specifically going to look at the focus on restoration that emerges in God's heart through Hosea. All right? So we'll look at what God is constantly doing in this book and what it looks like for us to acknowledge and receive that. And that's where we get into some, some issues about how we receive God's heart for restoration, which is every bit as important as understanding God's heart for restoration. Right? Um, so... So uh, I want to look at chapter 2 um, in the book of Hosea. And uh, we're just going to do a, a little bit at the beginning. In, in chapter 2, what we get is we get this intensely frustrated God, or husband, <laughs> however you're wanting to look at it, um, who, who says, oh, you are, you, you've essentially dissolved the marriage. I had a child with you. Then you had more children who were not of me and from me. And what this is all talking about is idolatry, okay? Um, every time that the Bible talks about uh, kind of this image of, of unfaithfulness or adultery is often linked with idolatry when he's talking about God's people. So they've gone in other ways. They've started worshiping the gods of Baal. And that doesn't just mean that they're going to the wrong church, okay? 
when they're worshiping the gods of Baal, they're, they're giving in to the way of life of the people around them. That included child sacrifice in certain areas. That included all sorts of, um, of yeah, ugliness that we would all see as ugly that we won't get into too deeply um, here. But, but it was about the way that people cared for others or lack thereof that was a part of that. So it wasn't just worshiping at the wrong church. It was having a value system that was different than, than God's heart. Are we together on this? Okay, so this is what's happening, and God's frustration comes out. But as we see, like we talked about last week, that, that God does not act on his frustration in the same way that humans do. We get frustrated and we lash out. But what we're intended to see here over and over again is that even though God says, oh, I'm so frustrated, this thing is over, then it changes because God is not like humans. And God's faithfulness always wins out. And so here's, so, so he's, he's talking about this covenantal language. And he says um, in verse 13, his, I will punish her for the days that she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after other lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. So that's covenant language. We had an agreement of working together, of doing something in the world that is good and beautiful. And she's running away with others. But it only takes a moment, like throughout over and over again in Hosea, and as we'll see later. Therefore, I'm going to allure her. So there's a shift here. God's compassion is winning out. I will lead her. Oh, let's, let's throw it up here on the screen. Therefore, in verse, uh, verse 14, this is when the shift happens. Therefore, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Then I will, give her back to the, I will give her back her vineyards, which earlier he said, you're not worthy of these vineyards. <laughs> you know, they're going to just dry up. And it's all talking about the goodness of, of life with God. I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, normally there's a lot of poetic language, and we can't possibly look up every image. But this is really important. The last statement here, the first statement, by the way, lead her into the wilderness, is not like leading somebody in the wilderness and abandoning them to die. What this is, is this is a honeymoon statement. After the, after the experience on Mount Sinai, when God creates the covenant with his people, they journey through the wilderness right after they've been married. And so he says, I will, I will return to the place of our honeymoon with you. It's all metaphor. I will lead you into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to you. I'm going to win you back. I'm going to win you back no matter what. But it gets better. I'll give her back her vineyards. I'll make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. The Valley of Achor is this really interesting reference to Joshua 7. Okay, in Joshua 7, you might be familiar with the Battle of Jericho where they got, the army marches around the city and then screams and the, the walls fall. So when that happened, they, um, it, was a, it was a massacre. It was really ugly. And we're not going to get into that. We can talk about it if you want to talk about violence in the Old Testament. Um, I lead a seminar on it, and I'm happy to have that conversation anytime, but not right now. And what happens is uh, everything and everybody is wiped out, and all these treasures are taken to the treasury. But this guy named Achan, not Achor, Achan, he sees some robes, and he sees some silver, and he sees some gold that he wants. So he grabs it. He doesn't tell anybody. And he digs a hole underneath his tent, and he buries it. So he, he pulls some of the loot for himself. And something's wrong in, in the city. Things aren't happening right among God's people. And so 
So through the prophet and, and through this, this word of God, everybody has to come out and kind of give account for what they've done. And it becomes public that this guy named Achan took all this stuff for himself. Okay? And what happens, this is where it gets really ugly, is he is taken to this place called the Valley of Achor. And there he is killed because he was not faithful. Okay? It was the place of judgment. Achor means trouble. So they called it the Valley of Trouble from then on. And it was the place where someone experienced judgment for their unfaithfulness. Destruction of everything for their unfaithfulness. Okay, so that's what that means. It's ugly. It's terrifying. And here's the image that Hosea brings from God. What I'm going to do is what you think about as the valley of destruction, the place of, of, of punishment, I'm actually going to make that a door of hope. Your failure, your unfaithfulness, will become a door of hope. How? How can disobedience and unfaithfulness, instead of leading us to judgment and condemnation, how can it be a doorway to hope? God here is making what would be the place of sin and judgment into something that brings life. How could that happen? Because one would come one day. One day. One would come who would absorb the power of sin and death and dismantle it. And so what we end up seeing from the valley of Achor to a door of hope one day is brought to complete fulfillment. And Peter talks about it and writes about it because he has spent years with Jesus, and as he gets older, he looks back and he begins to understand what this was all about. And he says this, they hurled insults at him. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Listen to the heart of God in this. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So there's a shift that is happening that Hosea talks about. That at one point, the, the condemnation and the sin that had led to massive destruction would not be that. In fact, the same reaction and, and response to unfaithfulness would actually be hope. And the reason that that can happen and the reason that that did happen is when one would come who would be willing to absorb the power of sin and judgment without spewing it back on the world. And so Jesus comes in and he plays this role of wounded healer. He plays this role of one who, who would experience the realities of judgment and, the, and which all the realities of judgment are always ultimately death. And he receives that and he kills death. He does away with death. And it changes how we understand the heart of God, ultimately. Because God is willing to suffer, if that's what it takes to bring hope and reconciliation. And so disobedience no longer equals destruction. This is the thing, this is the turning point that we're getting a glimpse at. Disobedience does not equal destruction. Because God's love is always stronger. And this is God's ultimate heart. So... What does the process look like when we realize that we were like sheep that have gone astray? What does it look like on our part? We're going to start to see what, what God's role is, but what does it look like on our part? This is where we have to talk about feeling bad for a moment. 
because how we deal with our own failure will say a lot about the quality of life that we can have, and it'll say a whole lot about what we believe about God. All right? So, let's talk about guilt. All right. When we mess up in life, we experience guilt, right? Um, and it's a problem. Because we, we can't just, when, when we experience guilt, we realize that in some way we've done something wrong. And usually how I'm going to define that is this way. We have chosen to reject love or to reject being able to love. So, so we, we feel guilty on some level because we rejected an opportunity to be loved or an opportunity to love. And I will, I will argue that strongly. That every feeling of guilt, whether it's a lack of self-control on our part or a nasty word, we had an opportunity to either receive love or give love and we rejected it. Okay? We did something to somebody that could have been loving but instead it wasn't. And so, so that's, that's what guilt is, okay? But when we experience, it, that is a part of every one of our lives. Rejection of love or the, uh, of the chance to love or the chance to receive love. Happens probably multiple times every day for all of us. So when this happens, when we experience guilt, which is a very natural emotional expression, we can go one of two directions. Okay. Guilt is I did something wrong, right? But quickly, what often happens in our world is guilt moves to shame, okay? And shame does not say I did something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. You see the difference, okay? So... So guilt says, I rejected an opportunity to love or be loved, and I feel bad about that. Shame says, I'm not actually worthy of love. All right? Shame says, shame is about identity. Guilt is about an action. Okay? And so, so what often happens is when we say, when we say that um, when, when guilt becomes shame, we begin to sit in something that says, I'm not worthy of, of giving love. I'm not good enough to even love somebody. And I'm certainly not good enough to receive love. And so this completely inhibits our ability to grow and our ability to live in freedom. Because you can't live free unless you know you're loved. Not truly free. And so, so if we don't think that we're worthy of love, then even when the message of love comes to us, we will find ways to reject it. Do you have any experience with what I'm talking about? When, when, we are ex when we experience shame, even an act of, of love toward us is really easy to reject. We explain it away. We say, well, their motives weren't pure. Or we say, well, I'll just screw it up again anyways. And so this is what happens with shame. We just sit in it. There's no movement there. But guilt can also move us in a different direction. And it can move us, should we choose, toward conviction. And now I'm defining things just for us helpful here. You know, you can also take the legal word conviction, which is very much about judgment. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about what we, what we often within the, the historic Christian church have talked about conviction, which is a sense of guilt, but we, we feel a, a, a conviction to move toward something. Conviction means I want to continue to change. It doesn't just mean I feel bad about something. It means I am being drawn back to something better. So if, if we let our guilt, which happens, our failure, move us toward conviction and we feel, hmm, I feel like something's off that needs to be made right, then 
we can move back toward love. But again, we won't be able to do that if we don't, on the deepest level, understand the heart of God. So what ends up happening here is shame, shame isolates us, all right? Um, but conviction invites us. And, and the problem is we don't live in a world that knows how to do this very well. When we feel guilty, there's one school of thought that would be on the extreme, um, maybe libertine um, experience that would say you shouldn't feel bad about anything because, because you're, you're so valuable and you're so worthy and you're perfect just the way you are. God loves you exactly as you are. Well, that's true, but let's be honest. We are people who are invited to be constantly transformed by Jesus. That's why we're called disciples and not just believers in Jesus. I don't think believers in Jesus is actually the best way to talk about biblical Christianity. It's disciples of Jesus. Followers who are becoming more Christ-like. That's the word for Christians. Little, little Jesus-i. Little Jesuses. Okay, that's why they were called Christians in the first place. Because they looked like Jesus. They began acting like Jesus. So on one level, don't change it all. Even if you feel bad about something, just let it go. On the other side, you are worthless because you failed. You are always a failure. You are born into sin. You'll die in sin. This is the story that is often heaped, heaped onto people, which does not take a full view of what Jesus came and talked about. Not at all. And so you've got these two, the, which often is kind of in the story of fundamentalism, which talks about forgiveness and grace, but often people's experience in real life of it is full of condemnation. And so you've got these two experiences, and neither of them match the heart of Jesus, which is conviction that leads us to being able to receive love and invites us back to God's heart. Yeah? So guilt should be brief. It should be the moment that opens our eyes when we realize that we've gone off course, but it stirs us to conviction, which moves us, if we understand God's heart, to restoration. Beautiful. Okay? A spirit of guilt is very difficult to get rid of. Some of you understand that? Spirit of guilt is incredibly difficult to get rid of. That's why we have to learn to move through it. Not ignore it, but not let it define us. Conviction means we're taking ownership. So it's different. Because there can be incredible hope. So the question for all of us is simply when we're unfaithful. And, and this is in relationship with other people or with God. When we're unfaithful, which direction will we go? Right? You're going to experience this. You're going to experience guilt if you have any moral compass. Okay, if you have any moral compass, you're going to experience guilt when you fall short. The question is, which way will you move? All right? And what you believe about God's heart will determine how you answer that, that question. And the beauty is that when we experience that thing, that pit in our stomach, the Gomer moment of, being, of, of realizing that I've been unfaithful, that I'm not living up to the identity that I could be, that I have been given, um, if we choose to turn toward God as a result, we find something beautiful about God's character, which brings us to the next verse. After the valley of Achor becoming a door of hope, in that day, we're looking to the future again, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, you will no longer call me my master. Okay, part two to how beautiful this image of Hosea is. Um, now there's multiple things in there. You might say, well, hold on, I thought, like, what's the master part come from if Hosea was was a spouse. If you remember last week, we talked about in the beginning of Hosea 3, when Hosea goes back and seeks after her, he purchases her. 
She has sold herself. She's on the baseline of, of humanity. She has no self-worth at all. She's sold herself uh, cheaper than a female slave would be. So our best inference is that she's only being used for one or two things. And he purchases her as a slave to gain her back. Really important. Purchases her as a slave to gain her back. But then says, but listen, my vision, where we're heading, don't worry. Where we're heading is that you're going to call me husband. There will no longer be any master talk. Where does that sound familiar? Right? Hosea is helping people look to a day when his people move from servant to family. Come on, right? John 15, I no longer call you servants. Jesus is talking with his disciples. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. There is nothing that separates. I'm not holding anything back from you, Jesus says. I love it. Not holding anything back. You did not choose me, but I chose you, remember? Remember, I believe in you. I find worth in you. I find value in you. I chose you. Don't ever forget that. This is not about power dynamics. This is about grace. Don't forget, I knew exactly what I was getting into, Jesus says, when I invited you to come and partner with me. And I appointed you so that you can go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Right before this, he says, I call you friends if you obey my command, which again, sounds like a power play until we realize that what the command is, is love. Because that's the only way you can move away from a servant-master relationship is wherein there is such dynamic love interplaying back and forth that there no longer needs to be a separation. It's so beautiful. It doesn't mean that we are equals with God, not by a long stretch, but it does mean that the way God thinks about us is very different than the way that we often talk about our relationship with God. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I call you family. Ah, it's so beautiful. All right. Later, Jesus identifies his disciples, not later, earlier, um, as, as brothers, as his brothers and mothers. He's asked about his family, and he says, my family is here. These disciples, they're my family, Jesus says. So, so there's multiple layers of this idea that they are full partners. And then in John 17, Jesus' prayer is that his disciples would be so intimately connected with Jesus, so intimately connected with him, that their oneness would be the same as Jesus and the Father. Complete connection. Nothing that hinders that relationship. So we see this again in maybe the best Hosea parallel story in the New Testament. And, and multiple people have talked with me about this because you've already seen it. So I love that. And it happens in, uh, in Luke 15. It's the story of the wasteful son and the extravagant father. Uh, you might know it as the prodigal. The word prodigal actually means wasteful. But, it means, <laughs> but it's intended to be kind of seen as the father being wasteful in his love not the son being wasteful in his resources. And so, uh, so a lot of, of kind of theologians and stuff don't talk about it as the lost son, um, but they often talk about it as the prodigal means the wasteful. That's how the early, some of the early church uh, fathers talked, the God who is so wasteful with love and grace that it ticks off people sometimes. Um, it's really, really interesting. But, uh, but what I want you to notice in Luke 15 is a couple things. Uh, this is the son. So if you... I'm not going to go through the whole story, but the son says, Dad, I wish you're dead. Can you just give me my inheritance early? The father loves his son, and it breaks his heart, but he does. He says, if that's your desire, 
That's your, free, that's, that's your freedom. So he gives it to him. He goes away. He wastes his inheritance, and he hits bottom. He hits baseline. Um, and when he comes to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired servants? He's in a land far away. He's feeding pigs. Jewish joke. Um, how, far, how much my father's hired servants have food to spare? Like, that's really a Jewish joke. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it was written in a way that would make Jewish people laugh because the, the guy's feeding pigs for slaughter. They don't eat pork. Anyways. I will set out and go back to my father, and here's what I'm going to say. Check it out. Watch the language. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Guilt? Yes. Realization. But what happens next? Which way does he go? He talks about worth, right? I am no longer worthy. He moves to shame. I am not worthy. That's a statement of identity. So make me like one of your hired servants. I'm not worthy of being family, so, so I will become something else, a lower level of relationship. A lower level of relationship. And then what happens, right? What happens is that he gets within reach of the father. This is him rehearsing up here. And then he finally gets to his father, and when his father sees him a long way off, which is a great phrase, a long way off, he goes out to him. We're not supposed to miss that. The father sees him even when he's really far away. And he goes out to meet him. Doesn't, make, doesn't even make the son come all the way to him. He goes out as fast as he can. And the son gets, him, gets to him ready to rehearse what he said. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. He doesn't get to finish this speech that he's rehearsed for so long. His father cuts him off. Says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals, and let's party because my son's back. And so the story here that we meet immediately is that even though his guilt had led him to shame, the father won't have any of it. He says, stop the bus. Full restoration. That's how this thing's going to play out. At any cost. You were lost, but now you're found. It's really important that we understand that God is not willing to settle for a lesser restoration that uses a power dynamic to remind us of our failures. Some of you have experienced situations where someone has wronged you and then there's been forgiveness, but there's still a power dynamic that doesn't go away. Do you understand that? That you're constantly reminded that you were the one that made the mistake. Constantly reminded you're a little less than. Maybe it's just a slight arrogance. Maybe it's the times that that person just brings it up subtly. Parents, we are brilliant at this. You know, we forgive our children and then... We just subtly bring up that thing that happened last week when we're frustrated with them about something else. It has nothing to do with it. But man, we've got great memories. That's not the story here. The story here is absolute full restoration that does not have this power dynamic that keeps you down as unimportant or unworthy. You are a part of my family. We're ready to go now? Okay, let's go then. Let's go. Let's move forward. What has happened, happened. But if you're ready to go, I'm ready to go with you. That's the beauty of restoration of God's heart when we actually experience the conviction that says, I want to be different. I want to move in a better direction. The answer is always, absolutely, let's roll with this. It's done. There's such beauty there. There's such beauty and power in this story and in this statement. Um, so, so what's the practical way for us to move from guilt 
to conviction restoration? What are some, just maybe a couple quick, simple, practical things? I want to move um, to Hosea 14, which is near the end of the story, and we have another similar moment. It's right at the end of the, the book of Hosea, and it's a vision of God's heart once again. But Hosea now turns his attention to God's people, okay? To Israel. And here's what he, he kind of yells at him. He says, return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. So open your eyes. Become aware. They were completely lost in their disobedience. They didn't even realize how far away they were from God's heart because they were just pursuing their own self-interest. So realize, first thing, return and realize. It's about honesty. We're sometimes really dishonest about our failure because we don't know how we can move through it if we acknowledge it. So the first thing is just return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Return, God's people. Your sins have been your downfall. Do you realize that there's a whole different world if you return that is possible? But if you're constantly living in the looking out for myself, um, totally uh, about my, my stuff, my money, my power, maybe even my religiosity that makes me not humble and, ab- and, and able to love others, whatever the case might be. If we don't actually say, I want to receive the reality of my imperfection and I want to move through it. I want to move toward God. We have to be willing to do that. But the second thing is great. I love this. Take words with you and return to the Lord. What a great statement. Take words with you. When you go back, love means never having to say you're sorry, right? Have you heard that before? For some horrible reason, a very often repeated phrase. Um, and it's, it makes absolutely no sense. And it, 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 is, it is completely destructive on every level. To suggest that if you love someone, you never have to apologize, suggests that you could just take the easy way out instead of doing the hard work of reconciliation. Take words back with you, Israel. It's great, isn't it? Take words. Sometimes you need to use your words. It doesn't matter if your spouse knows how much you love them. Take words anyway. You will save the relationship. It doesn't matter if there's a deep understanding that's beyond words. Sometimes you've got to speak up, okay? So there's such beauty to be able to to do if we're willing to use words. So take words with you. And then here are the words. It's so beautiful. The words that are... uh, that are given. Um, And say to him, this is say to God, forgive all of our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria can't save us. Here's a statement of who are we trusting in. I told you last week that one of the temptations during this time when Jeroboam was the king was to kind of um, become like all the other countries. They were having a politically and uh, economically and militarily strong season in the season of Israel. They were strong, they were looking like other nations, they were starting to build alliances. Their hearts were far from God, but on the surface everything looked good. So now they're admitting, you know what? Assyria can't save us. A strong nation can't save us. Our military can't save us. Our economy can't save us. All these things. (laughs) I mean, what do we got? How many thousands of years? We're still struggling with the same stuff. Syria can't save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. How beautiful is that? We will never again give the same level of value to our stuff 
as what only belongs to the true and living God. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. You see what they're doing? They've realized, they've realized that, that, yes, we have screwed up, but forgive us, God, because we know your heart. We know that in you, the fatherless find compassion. Those who have no family are welcomed into family. Become family. Oh, the grace here is so palpable. It's so beautiful. And so the response from God is equally beautiful. So I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. Again, don't miss that word. I will love them freely. Freely. No strings attached. I won't keep them lower because they've screwed up. I'm, I'm not going to keep Gomer as a servant. I'm going to marry her. I'm going to keep my covenant that is partnership in this thing that we're doing to remake and rebuild the world so that it looks a little more like God's kingdom and goes on into eternity. That's, that's what loving freely means. For my anger is turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Look at this beautiful language. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. You see the fresh new life there? There's new opportunities everywhere. Young shoots growing up. And this is great. People will dwell again in his shade. In the nation's shade. In God's people's shade, people will dwell and flourish. So God's people will be a people of blessing to the rest of the world. Just like Jesus taught his people to go and love their neighbors, to go and love their enemies, to break down the barriers between Jews and outsiders. This is it. This is the promise to Abraham that one day I'm going to bless you. They will blossom like the vine, and Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ah, it's just, it's beautiful. Open up the connection lines to God, the communication lines, and you will be delighted by who you discover. Take words. Open up the communication line to God, and you'll be delighted with who you discover. That's the beauty of the story. Um, I love how Paul writes about this. Later on, he's talking about grace and about conviction. And this is godly sorrow. Just read it this. Read the right side of the board. Godly sorrow brings repentance, a turning that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, shame, just sitting in your misery, brings death. See what this has produced in you. He's writing to the, to the church who experienced some conviction and responded in the right way. Look at what eagerness, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation at, the, at what they've done, right? What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Isn't that beautiful? We used this on Wednesday night when we had our Lent um, prayer gathering. Message paraphrase is really beautiful. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around, gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets. And they end up on a deathbed of regrets. And now, isn't it wonderful the ways that this distress has goaded you closer to God? You're more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. So good. So incredibly good. We have to realize this truth about how Jesus reveals God's heart. Otherwise, we'll live all of our lives deep down thinking that God is disappointed in me. Some of you have already been through decades of that. It's not the whole story. God is frustrated at you? Yeah, likely from time to time. But that never wins out. I'm frustrated at my kids. Frustrated at myself. Frustrated at my spouse. 
This is just the way of imperfect life. But in God's heart, it never lasts. It doesn't leave a mark. He's quickly overcome by compassion. So we can't live our lives thinking that God is disappointed in us. It does not live up to what we are told in the scriptures. So that's not working, so don't do it. It's not creating freedom and joy that you were designed for. The question is, will you trust Jesus and let it go, right? (laughs) Let it go. Uh, An experience of grace that Jesus offers over and over again in his um, interactions, like the father of the wayward child that Jesus talked about in Luke 15, like the reality that Hosea looked forward to in fullness, that experience will restore who you are at the very core of your being, and your name will be called the beloved of God. And nothing can change that, friends. So I encourage you, when failure comes, admit your guilt. Take your words to God. Don't let guilt become shame. Know God's heart is always toward restoration, as evidenced ultimately in both the teaching, the example, the life, and the sacrifice of Jesus. And walk in renewed partnership as God's loved people. Let's pray. God, thanks for the message that we see pointed toward in the scriptures that reveals your heart to compassion and restoration no matter what it costs you. I pray that we would have the courage to walk toward that. Just open us up to the joy of forgiveness, of grace, of restoration, of redemption. Let it, let it speak deeply to us so that the way that we live is totally altered because of it. We openly confess the areas that we have fallen short, that we have not been faithful to your love, to your value. And we openly claim your character knowing that you desire to give us a fresh start and welcome us fully into relationship. Help us receive that, Lord. Amen.